Uh, let's uh, read the Word of God in the first uh, book of Samuel, chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We're going to skip through several, I mean, we're going to skip some, but uh, read along with me. Verse 1, the Bible says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. Verse 3, But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. No, come on, not in government. Not, not, no way. Verse 4, So all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Verse 5, They said to him, You're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us as other nations have. Verse 6 says, but, then they said uh, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him in verse 7, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me. This is God talking. Forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Verse 9, now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Or in other words, what the king will do to you. So Samuel then goes and in and, and, and many, many uh, uh, verses of this passage, he tells them pretty much exactly what's going to happen, what, what's going to happen to them if they demand this king over them. And I can tell you none of it was good. In, in verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. All the other kids are doing it. And we'll have a king to lead us, to go out before us and fight our battles. In verse 21, when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And in verse 22, the Lord answered, said, listen to them and give them a king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the reading of your word. And we bless you today. We ask, God, that our hearts are prepared to receive what you will say to us through the reading of your scripture this day. We bless you. We thank you. And we ask you, God, as always, to pull us a little closer. We bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk to you today about loyalty. <laughs> Whatever happened to it, and to whom or to where does your loyalty lie today? Another passage that we're going to look at is from the book of Ruth. Now, in the book of Samuel that we just read, we read about a nation that was very disloyal to God. Now, here's something you have to understand. Samuel had already messed this situation up. You see, Samuel was a judge. And in, the, in, in this culture, in the way the government was structured, uh, uh, a judge did not appoint uh, people in their family. There was no carrying on of the generations in a judgeship. Only kings did that. But in this case, Samuel did it. So he had already violated a uh, uh, part of God's principle by appointing his sons who didn't even acknowledge God and, and, and perverted his ways and took bribes and injustice, as we read. Let's see. Uh, thank you, April. Thank you for that. April has already tagged a post on Facebook, so thank you, dear, for that. So Samuel had already messed up. I mean, part of what took place was his fault. So then he goes to God and says, 
what do I do now? Does that sound familiar? Isn't that kind of our life? We mess up and then say, God, what do we do now? How, how are you going to fix this, God? And, and so uh, uh, there was already this, this entire custom or tradition or law, if you will, that was out of place because Samuel was not a king. He was a judge. So we, we, we read about this disloyalty that took place between uh, the, the people and Samuel and the people and God. Now, if we, if we look at the book of Ruth, so that's our, that's our example of disloyalty. If we look at our example of loyalty, we go to the book of Ruth. And Ruth, of course, tells us the story of Naomi. And Naomi uh, had lost her husband due to a famine in the land. She also had lost her two sons. And so the two daughter-in-laws, I don't know how they made it, but they made it. And so, uh, and thank you, Lisa. I appreciate that as well. Well, I'm saying I appreciate it. There's no telling what y'all are putting here. I might ought to look and see. There, it could be bad. Um, so the, 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 the daughter-in-laws make it, but the, the, her, Naomi's husband and her two sons do not. So her world is falling apart, and so she tells her two daughter-in-laws to go back to their homes and begin a new life, to find new husbands, and they were young enough to start their life over. And uh, in, in verse 10 in Ruth, it says, she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and they both said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi says, no. Uh, uh, you need to return to your homes and to your families and marry again and have a life. So Oprah, in verse 16, does decide to leave. So Oprah goes back to her family. But Ruth says this, and this is a, pa a famous passage uh, in, in verse 16. Ruth says this, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. And Naomi's grief was very great. Again, her world had fallen apart. And, and, and Ruth had absolutely nothing to gain by staying with her. But she refuses to leave her out of loyalty to this woman. So here we see an entire nation turning their back on their leader and God saying, give us a king. And then we see a picture of Ruth saying, I'll never leave you. You know, a little bit later in the scripture, Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Today, we're going to be talking not only about our loyalty, but the loyalty of God to us. Whatever happened to loyalty? You know, we're living in a day more and more uh, where loyalty, it's sometimes pretty hard to find. You know, companies now spend tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars putting together customer service loyalty, customer loyalty programs or something along those lines to get you coming back to the, to the same thing. But loyalty has shifted in our culture, and it's just not the way that it used to be because we live pretty much in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately world. I, I uh, saw a clip. Uh, I remembered this clip, so I looked it up. Uh, uh, by, by Ronald Reagan when he was uh, on the inauguration platform uh, back some 35 years or so ago. 
uh, and, and Howard Baker, the, the famous senator, uh, said to him, Mr. President, I'll be with you through thick. <laughs> and President Reagan said, well, Howard, what about thin? And he said, welcome to Washington, Mr. Reagan. <laughs> I'll be with you through thick. Yeah, we'll check on the rest. To be loyal means to be, uh, uh, means to be unswerving. It means to have a, a faithful allegiance to a person or a cause. Some other synonyms of the word uh, uh, loyalty or loyal is faithful, devotion, dedication, constant, unwavering, steady, unfailing, and fidelity. These are all synonyms of the word. Loyalty is of great, great concern to God. Loyalty to him. Loyalty to his truth, loyalty to his word, loyalty to the kingdom, loyalty to his mission, loyalty to his person, to his purpose. It's of great, great concern to him. And so he fills the scripture with passage after passage about loyalty, my loyalty to you as my people, or your loyalty to me as your God. Passage after passage, dozens and dozens of scripture on faithfulness and loyalty. When I was growing up, uh, right here down the street in, on Avenue B here in Nederland, I lived here until I was about nine years old. And my sister, this was not planned, by the way, she just happened to come this morning. But her boyfriend at the time was a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. And I remember as a little boy, I was four or five, well, I guess five or six or seven years old by that time, uh, uh, we would lay on the floor in this house right over here, and I would lay, you lay on the floor like this until your hand just goes to sleep and it's painful and you let go. And I remember laying on the floor Sunday after Sunday with Jimmy watching the Dallas Cowboys. So as a child, I became a very dedicated and very loyal fan all the days of my life up until Okay, a couple of seasons I probably wavered, but, but up until today, I was a huge and still am a huge fan of the Dallas Cowboys. Back then, uh, Joseph Dandy Don Meredith, anybody remember, anybody old enough to remember Don Meredith as the coach of the Cowboys? He played all nine of his professional uh, football years for the Dallas Cowboys. He was replaced by Craig Morton, and then Craig Morton was replaced by uh, Roger Staubach, the icon of, of, of the world, Roger Staubach, who played all of his seasons for one team, the Dallas Cowboys. Now, over the years, through really, really good marketing, um, Brian, are you in here? Brian's in here. Now, most people don't know, Brian was actually, he was actually injured as a child. He was dropped on his head, and he developed an allegiance to a different team. What was that other team, Brian? That they won some games too. The, oh, yeah, the Steelers. Maybe you've heard of them too. So I'm telling you, come September, in that drum case right up there, you're going to see a, a black and gold towel, one of the terrible towel kind of things, and it'll be somewhere in there, and there will be snide remarks all the way through the season about the Steelers and the Cowboys. I'm just telling you that that's what happens over and over and over again over the years at this church. But anyway... Uh, uh, through a, a really good marketing campaign who at that time a really good owner and general manager uh, the, the Cowboys developed this huge fan base and in many of the cities it was noticed uh, that wherever they played that sometimes up to half of the stadium were Cowboys fans wearing Cowboys gear and hats and, and, and jerseys and all of those things 
Uh, and that had never really taken place in professional sports up to that time. The home team was the home team, and that's who came to the home games. Uh, but they were always one of the games. Back then, there were only two games on TV on Sunday. There was the National League game and the American League game, and the Cowboys were always one of those games, and pretty much, for the most part, still are. But now there's 200 channels carrying 300 games, and there's only 32 teams. I can't figure that out, but... When Texas Stadium was built back in 1972, they built it with a big hole in the top, and, and it was said that the reason they built that hole in the top was so that God could watch his favorite team play. Now, I can tell you that either God is not really that good at football, or he doesn't help, because I've watched a lot of times where God may have been watching, but he wasn't helping. I can just tell you that. In 1979, after the Cowboys won yet another Super Bowl, uh, the, uh, one of the sportscasters in, in getting ready for the next season just happened to use the phrase and dubbed the Dallas Cowboys America's team. Well, it infuriated a lot of people, but nevertheless, if you go to even today, even in their crummiest of crummy times, Wherever the Cowboys are playing, a huge portion of the city that they're playing in are fans of the Dallas Cowboys. It's just this phenomenon that has taken place. But I said all that to say, I have been a loyal Cowboys fan, even when Jerry Jones bought the team and fired uh, Tom Landry, the god of all coaches, the only coach the Cowboys had ever had. The next year when they won, went 1-16, I was like, ugh. Uh, I'm still a Cowboys fan. I'm still a Cowboys fan. My kids grew up in the Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin days. And uh, there was a little stretch there when they won three out of four Super Bowls, you know, right there in a row. It was pretty easy to be a fan back then. It was pretty easy to be a fan. But through our relationship over the years with uh, Pastor Mike Hayes in, in Houston, which is where uh, Candace attends church, uh, many, many of the Dallas Cowboys do to this day and always have attended Pastor Mike's church. He's been a chaplain to the team at different times, and many of his close friends are players of the Dallas Cowboys. So over the years, we've had the opportunity to meet many of those players. They've been here to speak, Gordon Banks from back in the 80s and, and Garth Jackson, and a lot of these guys. I even got to meet Tom Landry one time. What a thrill it was to meet Tom Landry, very strong born-again Christian, very, very great man. And he was in our area speaking at a, actually at a political event. And I had gone to the airport to pick up uh, somebody that was speaking at one of our conferences. And while I'm waiting for a plane to come in, I look down and going, holy cow, that's Tom Landry. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I, and I was 40-something years old at that time. It's not like I was a kid, but I'm going, uh, I, I need to meet Tom Landry. So I didn't ask him for his autograph. I just want you to know that. But I did introduce myself to him and shake his hand and thank him for his commitment to the Lord and for all that he had done and for helping to make me a fan of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I, I, uh, I remember different players coming in. One time I was standing up here on this platform, probably leading worship or something, hosting a service. I can't quite remember. But in back a few years ago, all of these doors weren't solid wood. Some of you remember when these were glass doors and they were uh, frosted. You couldn't really see through them, but you could see light through them. So all of these doors were glass doors. So I'm up here and leading worship, whatever it was at the time. And that door right there, everybody turn around and look. You see how dark that door is right now? Now there's a light on the other side of that door. So if that were a glass door, it would be very bright. But all of a sudden, that very bright door at the time got about that dark. 
And I went, whoa, what's that? Well, these door, the doors swung open, and I promise you, the man that walked in had to duck down and turn sideways to get through the doors. It was, he was huge. He started walking down, and I'm up here leading worship, and I remember going, holy cow, that's Jethro Pugh. <laughs> it was Jethro Pugh, one of the greatest defensive football players of all time of any team, and he's walking in here. And I'm going, what in the world? Well, he was traveling with Gordon Banks at the time. They had been preaching at a church in Houston and were on their way to Dallas. Gordon had been here a couple of times before, and they literally just pulled in the parking lot to come have church with us. They weren't speaking. They didn't tell anybody they were coming. They just showed up, and Jethro Pugh sat right there in front of us. It was just an amazing thing for me, somebody I'd watched on TV and that I considered such an icon. See, there's something about a loyalty to a team. I'm telling you stories from when I was five or six years old that I remember because of my loyalty to the Dallas Cowboys. I can't remember what I had for breakfast a while ago. Now, most of you also know that I'm a motorcycle guy. I love motorcycles. I, I've been riding motorcycles since I was nine years old. Not too long ago, I, I got back, I started riding motorcycles again, and some snide remark came from, from somebody in this church, and they said, oh, you're going through that phase again, or that phase. And I said, yep. I am. It started when I was nine, and I'm still going through it. But back in the day, I, I, I raced motocross. I raced dirt bikes, and uh, Honda had come out with this new motorcycle that I somehow got my hands on, and uh, I started riding Honda, racing Honda motocross, Honda motorcycles, racing motocross. I did that for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. Until I was in my 20s, I raced dirt bikes. Now, I was a huge Honda fanatic. I had Honda shirts and hats and jackets and stickers and, and the, the team Honda riders, the professional riders were, again, heroes to me. And, and uh, I do have some of their autographs because I was only 12 or 13 when that was going on. And, and, and so I developed this love of Honda. I mean, I was pure through and through a Honda guy. Well, a few years ago, probably 10 or 12 years ago, I bought these two guys, these two boys, I bought them some dirt bikes because I wanted them to have the fun that I had. And they did. But they were having all the fun. And so I wanted to get me another motorcycle so I could ride with them. And a friend of mine had a Yamaha, 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 had a Yamaha for sale. So I thought, well, okay, I can buy this. And I got to tell you, I hadn't raced a motorcycle at that point in 20-something years but I felt a little bit like I was cheating because <laughs> I was riding a Yamaha instead of a Honda. I'll take it one step further. About two months ago, I went and raced a dirt bike again, and I don't even have a dirt bike right now. My neighbor let me borrow one, and it was a, another brand as well. And I got to tell you, 40 years later, I felt a little bit like I was cheating because I wasn't riding a Honda. It's just this thing that was built in me, this loyalty that was uh, built into me. I don't understand that. Now, you know, most of you know, I, I ride Harley Davidson, and, and Harley Davidson people, man, they will cut you if you, you know that. I mean, it's a serious thing. You know, you, you, you brand yourself in Harley Davidson stuff. Another message that I preached a, a year or so ago was about the branding of Harley and how they've been able to do that to where people who don't even ride motorcycles wear Harley gear, so people will think they ride Harleys. <laughs> And so, uh, uh, you know, I, I have all this Harley Davidson stuff. I have hats and shirts and things that we wear when we ride. And, and my kids, most people, when they give me a gift, it has something to do with Harley now. And my daughter, 
I hope they're not watching. They're in Mexico on a vacation right now, so I don't think that they're watching. But if they are, forgive me, Vanessa. I love you. They bought me a T-shirt that said Triumph Motorcycles. Now, this is Triumph Church, obviously, but Triumph is a motorcycle brand. I can't wear that shirt anywhere. People will see me, and they know I ride a Harley. So I can only wear that Triumph shirt around my house. I'm even careful about going out to the mailbox in it because I'm afraid somebody will see me, and they go, wait, what about your brand loyalty there's just something about loyalty (laughs) you see there was a time when uh, employers were uh, loyal to their employees and and vice versa I remember my grandfather worked at Texaco my stepdad worked at Texaco I think every one of my uncles at the time worked at Texaco. My cousins worked at Texaco. We were a Texaco family. Now, back at that, Texaco didn't even really exist anymore in that form or fashion. But back in those days, those people only used Texaco products. They only bought Texaco gas. And they would drive miles out of the way to go to a Texaco station before they ever went to a Gulf station or or something like that because that was another refinery. And I'm sure Gulf people were the same way. But I just remember this loyalty to the brand. There used to be a commercial that said, you can trust your car to the man who wears the star. So some of you do remember it. And my family only trusted their cars to Texaco. I mean, if you bought gas anywhere else, it was sacrilege and you were in danger of losing your salvation. That's all there was to it. And now people will leave you for a penny a gallon you know there's no more loyalty like that in the book of proverbs chapter 3 verse 3 the bible says this never let go of loyalty and faithfulness and then listen to this tie them around your neck write them on your heart tie them around your neck write them on your heart never let go of loyalty now Now, I can tell you right now, it doesn't matter where you get your gas. It probably doesn't matter what team you want to root for, unless, of course, you want to lose all the time. Uh, But here's the thing. In this day and age, we better be faithful to something. We better be faithful. We better have a a loyalty to a faith. We better have a loyalty to uh, the Word of God. We better have loyalty to a church and and to pastors that cover us. There better be a loyalty uh, uh, because we're going through some rather difficult times. I don't know if any of you have noticed that, but there are difficult times. And if there's ever a time we needed a loyalty to a cause, to a God, and to a house of God, it's now. Loyalty is of great concern to God, folks, and he writes dozens and dozens of scriptures on it. First Kings chapter 8, 61, it says, let your heart be fully devoted to God. David told Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, as for you, my son, know the God of your father and serving him with a whole, and serve him with a whole heart, a willing mind. Serve him loyally. He prays in verse 19, give to my son a loyal heart and to keep his commandments. Man, what if we just had a loyalty to the commandments? You know, those 10, you know, the ones that talk about uh, uh, not having a God, another God before us or, or, or not having any idols or not taking the God's, name in, uh, God's name in vain or, or having a, a Sabbath and keeping it holy, not lying, cheating, stealing, not coveting, not committing adultery. What if we just did that man if we had a loyalty to the commandments of God how much better off 
would we be? How much better off would society be? What if we honored God by loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? So that from every dimension of us, from our being, there's a, a, a consummate concern that God is constantly honored. What if? Well, I don't know. I can't get there either. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what that would be like. It's almost like this utopia that we're trying to shoot for, but God says it's available to us. James warned us that a double-minded man, you've heard that passage before, a, a double-minded man is unstable. And then he follows it up and says, and that man shouldn't expect anything from God. Well, that's just a double-minded man. We're living in a triple-minded world, a quadruple-minded world, and whatever oopal comes after that. We're living in a world that is divided in so many different areas that I don't even know if God's in the mix, but if he is, he's certainly not anywhere close to the top. And yet, those are the people that expect so much from God. <laughs> we expect so much from God. Well, we're divided here, we're divided here, we're here, we're here, we're here. But God, can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? Throughout the New Testament, there's a concern expressed toward disloyalty. And perhaps none more than in 2 Corinthians. Uh, the church at Corinth at that time had manifested this severe disloyalty to God, to Christ, to the gospel and to Paul himself. It, it was like they had fallen under this seductive spell of, of false teachers. And, and, and they had, the, the, those false teachers called themselves apostles. And, and the church had fallen for it and therefore had defected. Now Paul had spent almost two years of his life at that point getting the church in place and, and ministering to the people, ministering the word of God there. And these people had been well taught. It was Paul, come on. They had been well taught. They were well grounded. And yet they were so easily led astray into a mutiny and this rebellion against Paul and against the Lord. Now here's the thing. Paul wasn't that concerned about them turning on him. His words get a little sarcastic if you read the book. And, and when he corrects them in, in this letter, uh, uh, but uh, he wasn't concerned so much about their disloyalty to him, but what he preached. His concern was about their disloyalty to Christ and him crucified, the gospel. That was where his concern lied. And so many of the problems that, that we read about in 1 Corinthians ha had been resolved. So Paul is, is somewhat heartbroken to see them plunge into this again into this disloyalty of following false teachers. And really, if you, if you study Corinthians as a whole, all 13 chapters of the second book are designed simply to try to get them back to a place of loyalty, back to the gospel, back to the Christ that Paul preached. Now, here's the thing. Now, the church at Corinth, they didn't, get to, they didn't know Jesus on a personal level. They didn't get to meet him face to face at, as, as, as Paul had. And here they were, this little Gentile community, thousands of miles kind of cut off. Uh, and there's a message in that as well. The farther you get away and get cut off from a source, the more chances you, you have of getting in trouble. Uh, but but uh, they hadn't really witnessed Jesus. They, they knew about Jesus, but they didn't get to see any of the miracles. They didn't get to witness any of that firsthand. All that they knew at that point, they had learned from Paul. So again, when they were cut off and those, these false teachers, uh, they swooped in as the enemy often does and exalted themselves above the apostles and above the teachers and, and they became the people's apostles and teachers. 
the Corinthians were impressed, but the Corinthians were also quite deceived. So Paul has to come in and fix it all up again. And he starts having, by having to defend himself. Now, he doesn't like doing that. If we read, Paul doesn't like having to do that. But here's what I want you to pay attention to. In uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says this to the people at Corinth. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. We'll come back to the rest of that verse in just a minute. But look at the first part. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. In other words, again, I'm not concerned about my relationship with the Lord. I'm concerned about your relationship with the Lord. I'm not concerned about my loyalty. I'm concerned about your loyalty and where this may lead you. Paul is saying, I'm grieved that, that you've gotten seduced away, that you are winding up in error, that you may end up in sin and your life might end up in shambles because you're listening to the wrong source. So what is the godly jealousy that we're talking about? The rest of the, the, the uh, a verse we'll look at in just a minute. But throughout the Old Testament, the issue of disloyalty to God was addressed over and over again. Uh, there are, and they use this word, the, the jealous God phrase. In Exodus 25, the Lord is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 30, 32, 16, the Lord is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In uh, uh, another passage, says they made him jealous with strange gods. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. It, it's repeated numerous times throughout the Old Testament. Verse 70, uh, Psalm 78, 58 says, They aroused his jealousy with graven images. Paul was feeling the pain of God's heart, his jealousy. And here's a verse I want you to look at. Psalm 69, verse 9. The passage says, Zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. God was feeling the empathy of God's heart as he writes in Corinthians, but so is the writer of Psalms here. He's feeling the pain of God's heart of those who insult him. The writer of Psalms, the, the, the psalmist here is saying, my passion for the worship of the true God, it's eating me up. I'm so passionate for you to be rightly honored and rightly worshiped. And it's not happening. So the psalmist says, the zeal for your house, it consumes me. Uh, are, you, are you angry every once in a while when you turn on the news and we see over the last few years this attack on our belief system and on our culture? Uh, you, you know, it seems like day after day there's something being done against the church or against Christianity, and it angers us. And we almost feel like we have to defend it. Well, God doesn't need defending but it's a good thing that we feel the hurt in his heart when, the, when a nation, any nation, turn their heart from him the way people do today. We read in John 2, uh, considering that verse in Psalm there, the zeal for your house consumes me. In John chapter 2, uh, the Bible tells us that uh, during Passover, uh, Jesus went to Jerusalem and he found people selling cattle and doves and exchanging money. He made a whip out of cords, and he drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Verse 16 of chapter 2 says, To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then in verse 17, here's what the Bible says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. 
Jesus was sick to death of seeing God's house dishonored. And so he went into a bit of righteous anger and a bit of a rage, if you will. And he cleared the temple because the zeal for his father's house consumed him. In other words, I cannot stand to see my father so dishonored. In the book of Daniel, uh, he, uh, Daniel prays this prayer uh, about his people and restoring the nation. And he, he ends the prayer in verse 19 saying, For your sake, for your sake, O Lord, because your glory is at stake, your name is at stake, your honor is at stake, O Lord, rise up, O Lord, heal, forgive, Lord, do it for your name's sake. Paul and Daniel did. They felt it. I think you and I sometimes need to feel that hurt in our heart when, when God's house, when God himself is dishonored. So I said we would go back to the other part of that verse in 2 Corinthians, uh, just another piece to that puzzle. Uh, when Paul says, I'm jealous uh, with a godly jealousy, he then says, I promised you to one husband, to Christ. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's, serpent's cunning, that your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he's discussing uh, their relationship with Christ, and he lays it out in the analogy of a bride to a betrothed to a husband. I won't go into the depth of that because that's a huge uh, teaching in, in and of itself, what that meant in the Jewish culture. But I will say this, that when a woman was betrothed to a man, it was a legally binding contract, it was a morally bind, binding contract, and it was a spiritually binding contract. And if you broke that contract, it was, could be punishable by death. Now, I wonder if our infidelity levels would go down these days if we knew that the punishment could be death rather than destroying a family and losing half your stuff. I don't know. I just wonder. I wonder if the number of people who decide uh, uh, to, to, to be unfaithful in any avenue of their life, if they knew that the punishment for their disloyalty was death, I wonder if that would change. Loyalty, it, it brings a powerful sense of belonging. It brings a powerful sense of solidarity, and it's all about relationship. When Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? What did he say? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And then secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're called to this steadfast loyalty in our relationship with him and with those around us. I, I want to tell just a, a quick part of a story here and talk to you some about uh, a loyalty and disloyalty in a different way in a different way and i'm going to make this as quickly as quick as i can it was about 12 years or so ago uh, there was a pastor in this church who we all considered a friend and a fellow servant and uh, we served side by side together for many many years he was one of pastor randy's first sons in the gospel he, he was being trained under the ministry of Pastor Randy and Renee, and, and the idea was always that he would uh, at some point branch out and have his own church. That was his goal, that was his desire, that was his calling, and that's what the plan was for his life. <clears throat> Pastor Brenda was the reception of, this, of, of the church here for many, many years, and one day I was at the office and visiting with her when... Uh, and 
she had to make a copy or get a fax or send a fax or something. I can't remember what it was. And I went to the copy fax machine to get something off of there. And I noticed this piece of paper kind of tucked up under there. And I pulled that out and I thought, huh, that's interesting. What is this? And it was a, an IRS application for a 501c3 ministry uh, or, or nonprofit organization. And it had this guy's name on it. I referred to him as pastor from here on out. I will refer to him as man or guy because what he did was nothing pastoral about it. What, as the story unfolded, I'm going to make it as quick as, quick as I can. Uh, the pastor, this, this man, this guy had been spending months and months and months secretly plant, planning to plant his own church outside of Triumph Church. Again, no problem. The problem was he was doing it, getting a paycheck from this church, planning his church. Again, not the biggest part of the problem, but he was secretly going to families and telling them what he was doing and telling them they needed to move with him. Again, trying to make a long story somewhat shorter, but short stories all in, always end up being longer. Uh, he, he did that. When that was uncovered and he was questioned about it, it was a premature break and he broke and many of these people went, went, went with him. And it was a very devastating time, as you can imagine, for Bishop uh, Randy and Renee. Uh, they loved this guy and their hearts were behind him and they were going to help him plant a church and that's, that was just it. But while drawing a paycheck from this church, he was conniving with other people and, and uh, to, to go do it on his own and he did that. And again... That's one thing. Not, it's not the end of the world. But then they began to mount this campaign against this church. And those people began to mount uh, a campaign of lies and accusation against Bishop Randy and Renee and everybody else involved, me and Brenda included. I heard things about myself that I didn't even know I was capable of doing. <laughs> it was a very, very difficult time for this church. Not because it hurt the church so bad. I mean, it was devastating to our pastors because they had poured their lives into this man. Seen him delivered from drugs off the street and now a pastor. And now that was his disloyalty. That was his way of paying them back. If you've ever had one of your children turn their back on you and accuse you of things, maybe you understand that pain. If you've uh, ever suffered the infidelity of a spouse, of that betrayal, of that accusation, maybe you understand the pain. So a bunch of people left. Now the people that were grounded in Christ and, 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 and uh, mature, air quotes, air quotes, air quotes, mature, old enough to know better and they left that's one thing the problem was many of the people that left this church were brand new Christians fast forward a little bit that guy entered into an adulterous affair and lost his marriage and his family he stole a whole whole lot of money according to police records and the lawsuits that began to fly not from anything with ear but all after they had left that church went away, dissolved, no longer exists. He no longer lives in this area. But here's the thing. Many of those new Christians don't even, don't even live for God anymore. Because they were led astray, like, the, the, like possibly the church here at Corinth. Now Paul goes after these people and, and tries to minister to them and, and, and tries to be nice to them. 
maybe some of you have heard me say when that kind of thing happens to me or to my loved ones, being kind to those people is not the first thought. My signature move would be a throat punch, but <laughs> I didn't do it. I wanted to, but didn't do it. But when I saw the pain, when I saw the agony on Pastors Randy and Renee at that time, and, and it, it, just the, the absolute betrayal of someone that they knew and loved, and now not only left, but trying to destroy them in the meantime. Can I tell you just briefly why I'm loyal to this house of worship? In 1985, I was a parachute-panted, industrial-strength, mullet, bandana-wearing, wannabe Christian rock star. And we met pastors Randy and Renee Clark. And they saw something in us that we never even saw in ourselves and probably still don't see in ourselves for that matter. But they saw it. And they began to pour their life and their heart into training us and strengthening us and giving us opportunities for ministry that we had never experienced and could never imagine. The first funeral I ever heard Randy Clark preach was my own grandfather's because there was no church relationship on that side of my family for that much, uh, for, uh, to that point. And he said, well, Kirk, I'll do that. And I said, well, no, I don't want you to. And he said, no, I'll do that. The first funeral I ever heard him preach. We were a part of this church when it started in the, uh, before, just after it had started in the Marshall's living room, became what is now Exciteland with about two handfuls of people, and now we have buildings and campuses all over the place. Our children were born and raised here, and now two of our grandkids are being raised here. Uh, we've experienced the highest highs of our lives, uh, the lowest lows of our lives. We've been covered by this church and this ministry. This church has been a shelter in the time of storm, not just for us, but for many of you. Literally a shelter in the time of storm when there were hurricanes. And figuratively a shelter uh, of storm in, spiritual, in the spiritual aspect of things. We've had the greatest name preachers and, pa and pastors preach on this platform. Today you've got me, but no message is ever more or less important than any other. This church has been a light to our community. Uh, we've sent missionaries all over the world. We've launched or helped to launch churches all over the country. And whether it was Randy and Renee Clark or Damon and Christine Scapin or now the awesome leadership of Randon and Lindsay Clark, the gospel has been preached. People have been saved. They've been healed. They've been delivered. Marriages put back in motion. People are ministered to on a daily basis. When the writer said, I was glad when they said unto me, let, a, let us go into the house of the Lord, I can say that and mean it. Can I tell you just real briefly why I'm loyal to this woman? I met her when she was 14. I somehow convinced her to marry me when she was 18. And as Forrest Gump would say, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Uh, I, she is the most godly woman that I know and, and ever will know. We've been through some amazing things in 34 years of marriage, as you can imagine. And here's why. Here's how it's happened. We always learn to turn to each other instead of on each other. We learn to turn to each other instead of from each other when we went through difficult times. We have three beautiful kids and, and four, even almost five now, even more beautiful grandkids. My life is fuller. It's richer because of her. I have no choice but to be loyal to her because of her loyalty to God and to me. I have friends in this church literally from my childhood. Friends for 30, 40 years. 
You see, folks, you and I, we need friends in our lives. We need loyal relationships. Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. When I look back through it all, I find that what we really need is relationships. I told uh, our life team the other night, uh, meeting at our house, that, that Pastor Randy Bishop uh, many years ago said this statement, Life moves at the speed of relationships. I've held on to that principle. And what I found is the relationships that I've had in my lives with people, the relationship that I have with this church, and the relationship that I have with God is what has moved my life to where it is right now. You see, we serve a very loyal God. His love is steadfast, it's unchanging, and therefore it requires a loyalty from us. I want to close with this passage, or not a passage, but this quote. G.K. Chesterton said this, We are all in a leaky boat on a stormy sea, and we owe each other a terrible loyalty. I don't know where your relationships are. I don't know where you feel like you are in your life today. But what I want to do at this time, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward. And uh, uh, if you would like someone to join hands with you and pray with you about this church or relationships in your life or a loyalty thing going on in your world, we want to op- we're going to open these altars for anything. So prayer partners, if you'll join me right now. And I'm going to pray our blessing over you in just a moment. But again, I want you to know, folks, we serve a loyal God. He loves you. He's here for you. And if you're lacking those things in your life, it's because you haven't come to know God in a loyal and true and steadfast way. And it's time to take that next step. This church needs you. This community needs you. This region needs you. This country needs you. And God knows we need God. Amen.